Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Claudine Lewis. I am currently a PGY5 in the Integrated Cardiothoracic Surgery Residency at University of Rochester Medical Center. I'm the current TSRA secretary and the 2019 recipient of the Cardiothoracic Ethic Forum Scholarship. I am here with Dr. Constantine Mavrudis, who is the Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Payne Manning Children's Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana, and also Professor Emeritus of Surgery at Johns Hopkins. He has written a major text in the field of bioethics called Bioethical Controversies in Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery. Dr. Constantine Mavrudis, what would you say is the goal of the text that you have produced? We got a bunch of uh, 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 topics together and uh, put them all together in one text. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think it, it first started off, the first chapter is probably one of the best chapters in the book. Uh, I did not write it. My co-editor wrote it, uh, Tom Cook, and it's an introduction to bioethics. I, I recommend that to anyone who wants to learn about bioethics. It's all there, and it's, it's written beautifully. But the next uh, chapter has to do with uh, uh, informed consent which is a real important part of what we do. So what do you do when you join a group that's a, that's a very small volume and, uh, and then you're an experienced surgeon? How do you, how do, you do um, informed consent under those circumstances? And to, unfortunately, I guess for people who are in uh, low volume centers, um, there are multiple reports out that show that uh, the better results are achieved in high volume centers, right? And uh, furthermore, uh, there's an increased interest now of regionalization. And this was done in Great Britain by law. You can't do that here in the United States. You can only suggest that uh, if there are three programs in one city, perhaps there should be just one program. And right now it's, uh, it's left to the, uh, pl the places in, in those areas that are served by more than one or two programs to see the light and bring it uh, together again. However, if you are in a low uh, volume program, then how do you do uh, proper informed consent when your volume is low? And then let's just say you're out uh, uh, from residency or fellowship two or three years. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean just because you have a low volume program, that does not necessarily mean that, that you have inferior results. And, and I think that it's incumbent on the person who's doing the in, informed consent to say, well, I've done tetra, 10 tetralogies uh, during this time. They've all survived. Uh, and we have done very well. And uh, while other programs high, have higher volume, uh, we feel that our program is uh, excellent. And, that, um, uh, and then you be transparent about it. And that, uh, and that that's the key to it, is to make sure that you're not telling any stories to the family and that you're transparent about it. And that even if you're doing an operation for the second or third or even first time, 
as long as you are, though, that family is coming to you for a particular good reason. They like the hospital. They like their cardiologist. They want to see somebody who is uh, honest with them and will tell them all the, uh, all the issues concerning that operation and the like. So I think that while the data are showing that low volume programs are not as good as high volume programs, it not, it's not necessarily true for every low volume program. And I think that's uh, how I think I would handle it and, uh, and, and, and perform the informed consent under those circumstances. Well, the patient and family understanding, this is the essence of informed consent. And at this point, I think the, uh, the listenership, if we call uh, that in a venue like this, uh, you know, the interesting thing was that informed consent was not brought about by physicians. It was brought about by lawyers and the law. And the first uh, issue on this came in 1957 and it was in a uh, in, in a law in a, um, a a suit, and it was Salgo versus uh, Leland Stanford Junior University Board of Directors. This again a cause cause in 1957, and in that in that uh, decision, the court said physicians don't do informed consent very well, and it's important that they do do it very well, and we're going to make them do it very well, and they did. And this is called professional-oriented standards, and and it uh, and that the physicians had to live up to uh, what the standard of of care is in that in that organ in that uh, geographic area, and the standard of care is what it was, and and that the um, physicians involved, the surgeons involved, had to uh, communicate this to their patients. Now, this didn't seem to be enough, and as it moved forward, there was. It moved from professional-oriented standards to patient-oriented standards, which means that it wasn't just in the local area. It wasn't just Jersey City or Omaha or San Francisco. It was all over the country, and that these standards uh, were now universal standards all over the country, and uh, these emphasized the four, uh, the four principles of informed consent or of how we practice, and that is autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. And uh, I always uh, uh, joke about this because uh, one of the professors that I've known very well in bioethics, Professor Daniel Robinson, who taught in, in, uh, in Oxford in Great Britain, and he always says, autonomy, 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 and I forget the rest of them, uh, which uh, goes to show you just how important autonomy is. Uh, and this goes back all to the, uh, to the principles in, in Greece as well about how important it is for uh, we humans to be in control of our own body. And, uh, and, and so here come the principles of how we perform informed consent. We can talk about selective emphasis. We emphasize one thing over another, making sure that every, all this is for the best of the patient. We have beneficent persuasion. What does that mean? It means that we might uh, persuade a family to do one thing when we think it's um, when it when we think it's the best for that patient. That doesn't necessarily mean we're we're doing this for any bad reasons or anything like that. But we might put the best foot forward for that particular patient. That's called beneficent persuasion. We also have probably the most important thing is shared decision making and. and we should always uh, allow the family member, uh, the patient, the, the mother of the child, 
to share in the decision-making process uh, of when to operate, when not to operate, what we would do, and so forth and so on. And that's also an, a very important part of informed consent. And then we have that uh, ubiquitous term called nudging. This came out from uh, Professor Thaler from the University of Chicago. He won the Nobel Prize in economics, not for nudging, he won it for something else. But nevertheless, he wrote this book on nudging. And uh, to give you an idea what nudging is in his way is that you go to a grocery store and when that grocery store owner puts something that he wants, he or she wants you to buy at eye level. And then the rest of the stuff is down below. That is so-called a nudge. It's a nudge for you to see it and then perhaps buy it. When we talk about nudging in, in medicine, we, we, uh, we would never do a nudge when it's uh, against the uh, principles uh, of autonomy and, um, and uh, beneficence and the like. It's always something that we're pushing perhaps uh, to the patient for their benefit uh, that we think that is best for them. Uh, that's a, that doesn't necessarily mean it's paternalism, but it means it's a so-called uh, nudge that we're thinking that the patient should do this, uh, but it should never be uh, maleficence. It should always be beneficence and it should always be for the good of the patient. So I, I think that of, of interest in, in uh, informed consent is that you know, we don't have a, um, we don't have a, a standardized way of doing informed consent, do we? We have a standardized form of doing a physical examination, right? Chief, chief complaint, history of present illness, et cetera. That's standardized. We have a standardized way of doing a brief op note, right? Pre post-operative diagnosis, but we don't have a standardized way of doing informed consent. And I think this is a rather important issue and probably deserves some uh, uh, attention as we move forward uh, with these kinds of scopes and these kinds of uh, bioethical controversies. So for those of you who are out there who want to join the uh, process of uh, getting a, uh, a system uh, for informed consent, uh, I welcome you. Uh, this is something that I've been thinking of for many, many years. and. Uh, it, it uh, always uh, a, a difficult situation. You need the input from lawyers, you need the input from judges, you need the input from physicians, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that needs to be done for informed consent. However, in uh, re that, regardless of that, we still have to perform informed consent in a uh, organized way so that our patients know exactly what's going on. I guess from my perspective, or at least how we do it here, uh, risk benefits, alternatives um, have been some of the methods in which some, some of us are, are doing informed consent. Yes, yes. I, I think as long as you're uh, uh, open about what you're, what you're talking about with the family, I think that that works out for the benefit of, of all concerned. And I guess for this population, it's even more complex since um, uh, the risk benefits and alternatives probably varies per diagnosis, per uh, physician performing um, the procedure, given their high or low volume. So uh, this is an, an incredibly uh, difficult conversation to have. No, I think that's right. Uh, at some point or another, uh, you know, a young person becomes an older person. A young person with no, not much experience becomes a person with experience. And, and that has to be uh, done 
in um, in a good environment. Perhaps it's better off done with uh, a junior member and senior member in the same organization, whereas the senior member is the mentor of the junior member. Uh, but at the same time, that that junior member still has to uh, know how to learn how to do these operations and how to perform them uh, without um, without being uh, with being truthful, let's put it that way, without being untruthful, being truthful about it to the family. And and if the family says, uh, look, I would rather have somebody else, then you you it's incumbent on you to help them find somebody else. So uh, for instance, if you're in a in a in a place where uh, there are two surgeons, uh, one in one organization, one in one uh, program, one in another program, and one program does a a, neural, uh, a, a, a Ross operation extremely well, and the other one doesn't. And if they're in, if the family is in that organization that doesn't do many nor uh, any uh, Ross operations, uh, if they say, "Is there any other place that has more experience?" You're obliged to tell them that. And then to make that telephone call to that to, to the, your competitor, say, I have a patient here who wants to come to you for a Ross operation. That's hard to do. But on the other hand, that's that's the nature of, uh, of, of autonomy and the nature of being transparent. Well, so Dr. Uh, Mavrudis, how do you feel about the off-label use um, of instruments as it pertains to a small core to patients in studies or uh, inability to acquire randomized control trials. Uh, how do you feel about it? Well, uh, this, is, um, this situation has undergone a huge, um, I would call it a metamorphosis, really. Right now, we have detailed principles and established um, methods when, for, drug, uh, for introduction of drugs and devices. That is very, very well controlled. You can't you can't uh, introduce a new drug or a new device without going through uh, the FDA and, and multiple uh, levels of uh, of in inquiry concerning this. It's not so much for surgical variations. For instance, um, as you recall, the Norwood operation. I don't think that that was uh, really. Uh, um, I don't think that that was vetted by anyone. I think Bill Norwood decided that uh, these patients were dying and that he had a a good way of doing it, and he did. And and over time, uh, the mortality has improved. Uh, the same can be said about um, uh, fetal cardiopulmonary bypass and for pulmonary stenosis. Now, that, however, uh, Frank Hanley started doing that, and and that required a permission. And he he was wise enough to get permission from the IRB to do something like that. So. We have one example that of the Norwood operation that didn't require very much, but we had a, a new form of therapy which involved fetal cardiopulmonary bypass for uh, intracardiac repair. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Frank Hanley did that and reported it, and the patient, uh, the fetus, didn't uh, actually died. And I asked him about that, and and he said, well, it didn't work out very well, so we stopped doing it. So you have two examples. One is not very much uh, uh, um, overview, and then the other one with a lot of overview, and uh, uh, you could see how that how that all turned out. I, I had a personal experience with this in 1981, I think, yeah, when I first started uh, my residency, and this one 1.8 kilogram child with uh, pulmonary atresia and VSD 
and uh, the ductus arteriosus was closing, and we were just 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 at that time having uh, introduction of prostaglandins, and that kid needed a shunt, and it was only 1.8 kilograms. So I uh, I scheduled a case for him in one room, and I did a coronary bypass in the other room, and I told them to get the residual vein and put it in an antibiotic solution and put it into the other room. I didn't ask the family, I didn't ask the patient whether it was okay for me to use his vein, but we're gonna throw that part out anyway. I didn't ask uh, anything to anyone. I just went in the, next, the other room and I put this vein in and uh, as a aortopulmonary shunt, a central shunt. The kid survived. Uh, later on, and a year or two later, I, I did a uh, complete repair with closing the VSD and a right ventricular pulmonary artery conduit. Well, that, that uh, process today would be anathema. No one would even dream of doing something like that. And, uh, and, and quite frankly, uh, I think that I, I probably should have done that then either. I, I didn't do informed consent. Uh, I didn't uh, 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 consider this with anyone else, but, but I had a patient who was a little baby, a 1.8 kilogram, who was dying, and I thought this would be the best way of dealing with it. Fortunately, nowadays, uh, we have oversight, more oversight, because we can't have people running around doing these kinds of things. And I, uh, and I say this to you now because probably I shouldn't have done what did what I did, but that the result was what it was, and it was a good result. But these are the kinds of things that we need to talk more about. And I suspect if I talked with a few people and I had an emergency uh, uh, discussion with the IRB that they probably would have let me do that. And I think that that's how uh, it should be done uh, in, in the future. So we need more, we need greater oversight in what we want to do on an off-label thing. And it's nothing wrong with uh, discussing all of this with our colleagues because they probably would have uh, ideas about it. And if they didn't think it was a good idea, then th that should be talked about and, and probably wait until uh, more information is gleaned on the issue and so forth and so on. So like I said, we have, we have, um, an FDA for drugs and devices, but we don't have an FDA for new operations. And uh, and then maybe uh, as time goes by, we'll have to consider doing something like that. Amazing. Well, you, the cohort of, uh, of, of who you uh, do operations on are pediatric for the yes. majority, I presume. Um, I know you've probably come across some conflicts as it pertains to uh, decision makings, perhaps you think the patient is better suited one way and the family may think of another um, or say, no, we're not going to go that route. So surrogate decision-making uh, concerns and substituted judgments in your pediatric cohort will be some of, I guess, uh, events or something you, you, you can uh, speak on. Well, uh, thank you for that introduction, um, Claudine. Um, I think that going back to... Um, autonomy, adults with a sound mind uh, can decide how they want to proceed. You have to pay attention to what they say. And then the only thing that I could do is to recommend an operation or not recommend an operation and then uh, and make sure that, that uh, they understand it and they have a sound mind. And they, they can choose to do it or not do it. The problem arises is, what about a child? And um, if the family says, no, this tetralogy patient should not have an operation, what do you do in a situation like that? And I think that the, an example of this, for instance, is uh, 
Jehovah's Witness patients. If if a Jehovah, if an adult Jehovah's Witness patient says, "Look, I want this operation, but I don't want any blood, no matter what happens, even if I'm about to die, you can't give me any blood." You have to. You are duty bound to respect that. And and then in fact, if 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 there is a lot of bleeding and you can't stop it, then you can't give them blood because that's a directive to you. However, what about a child? If a, a Jehovah's family comes to you and as a patient with a Tetralogy Fellow, and you know that you're going to have to use blood for that patient, you're going to try not to, but you know you have to, there is a way of, of asking the, uh, the, uh, the court uh, to uh, have a dispensation for you to be able to use blood. And, and that basically means that you take the decision-making away from the family and you use your own decision based on uh, the will of the court. Now, the state, uh, small state, S-T-A-T-E, the whole state, has a, a, an enormous interest in the benefit of her children, namely our children. And, uh, and they want what's best for that child, uh, regardless of whether the family wants to have blood or not. That's a kind of interesting thing because the, uh, uh, I am duty bound to respect the, uh, the will of the adult, but at the same time, I have a responsibility to the baby or to the child, and, and I would go and get a court order to allow me to use blood. It's a, an interesting state of affairs, and, and that, that is what it is. Uh, but in terms of uh, surrogate decision-making, uh, I think that, for instance, here's one situation that comes up from time to time. There's a baby born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And uh, the family says, we want uh, comfort care. We don't want anything to, we don't want any repair. We don't want any therapy for the child. We just want the child to have a comfortable end of life. Now, in many, in many programs, and I say the majority of the programs will allow that because um, we, we would offer uh, a Norwood operation and yet we would not be a, 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 a we would not be opposed to comfort care, at least in most uh, circumstances. We don't offer comfort care, but if the family wants it, then that's we would do that. However, suppose a baby is born with Tetralogy FLO and is ductal dependent, and the family says, well, just stop the prostaglandins. We don't think that the patient, uh, that we don't, we don't think the patient is, uh, uh, should have the operation. Well, what do you do in a situation like that? <laughs> I think most people, uh, would say, well, look, this is a this is a two ventricular repair. Uh, it's just it's an open heart surgery. We think that uh, we would uh, do everything we can to try to persuade the family. Under these circumstances, if the family were not persuadable, and, and hopefully they would be, but if they were not, uh, you might you face with the idea of saying, okay, that we should we need a court order to. Uh, to allow us to do the operation and have a uh, have the baby go to either to a foster home or uh, go back to the family. Fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, I don't know of any time that's ever happened, but it could happen. And these are the kinds of things I think we have to think about when we talk about advanced directives and sur surrogate decision making. Thank you for that. This might be a complex uh, question. Um, or discussion when it comes to animal research and rights, uh, knowing in particular this, the field of cardiac surgery, let alone congenital heart disease, has benefited so much from extensive uh, 
procedures and innovations requiring uh, animals. But from the bioethics perspective, what's your take on animal research and rights? This is, I think, a very interesting question. I'm glad you brought this up. But, not, but the answer that I'm going to give you is probably something that maybe a lot of people haven't thought about. There's no question in today's world that we have a uh, animal uh, committee, right, an animal care committee, that if we wanted to do an opera, uh, any set of experiments, we have to go through that committee, right? And then, you know, whether we're using rats or uh, pigs, uh, piglets, or whatever, and and uh, the um, animal care committee has to uh, agree to uh, doing that. Uh, well, when we move forward to um, xenotransplantation, right? What animal do we use for xenotransplantation? We use a porcine model, right? Why don't we use the ape model? The ape model is closer to us. Uh, they have 48, right? They have 48 chromosomes. We have 46. They're a whole lot closer to us. And this this uh, question was put to um, Fossey. You remember her? She was the one that uh, was protecting the great apes, you know. And uh, she said they put this question to her: What about if we use um, ape hearts to do transplants? And she says, you know, one for one, there are not that many apes that we can just breed to do that. And would you be looking at taking out a, uh, the entire population of apes or whatever, chimpanzees and so forth? She said, the only thing that I would, I would uh, agree to uh, experimentation on primates is if there was an infectious disease situation such as uh, the COVID virus, right? Uh, that you wanted to do, uh, you wanted to test a, um, a, a, a treatment or a, um, a vaccine, I would agree that that would be all right if we could save millions of people, but not one for one. I was persuaded by that uh, significantly where, you know, we would use porcine models, but we don't use apes. Uh, now, uh, I guess apes are more like our cousins than are the pigs, but interestingly enough, the pig model, uh, I think that if you can, it can do some uh, genetic uh, change or genetic uh, engineering, you can make the pig model uh, very similar to uh, a human. And that's why we're going through with the xenotransplantation. But I, that's the only thing that I, I found that um, is a problem with animal experimentation. Uh, most, of, uh, most of the models that we use are uh, rats and uh, dogs and uh, and uh, porcine model and uh, those seem to be accepted uh, I think most people don't like the idea about uh, dogs being used because they're so they, these are mild these are creatures that we love and we have in our homes and we have a hard time looking at them as being models for congenital heart disease but um, but I think the porcine model is is probably the one that's uh, used the most in uh, congenital heart disease and models of congenital heart disease and I think that that will be the one that is going to be used uh, in the future about xenotransplantation. That's the question whether we put a, a higher value on some animals uh, versus others, you know, rodents and rats. <laughs> I, I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I'm, that's why I brought it up because uh, who are we to say that a, an ape is more important than a, a human? Or for that matter, an ape. Uh, an ape, not my then a pig, but then again, who are we to say that an ape is uh, more 
as not as or that a human is more important than an ape. I, I would vote for the human, but uh, I'm sure if you were an ape, you'd feel differently about it. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, so egocentrism haven't happened there. Uh, so this 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 uh, next question pertains um, probably uh, some things you probably experienced during your time and your career withholding surgery as it pertains to genetic and extracardiac anomalies. Um, yeah. Obviously, majority of the patients have anomalies, but some of the bioethical concerns that may happen in this realm. Can you give us your take on that? Yes, thank you for the question. Uh, there has been a metamorphosis of this of these standards in my lifetime. For instance, uh, when I was uh, a, a resident, uh, we didn't operate much on Down syndrome. Well, a lot of people didn't. And, uh, and then we found out that they had AV canal and that they would suffer. And, uh, and, and so withholding an operation for a child just because they had Down syndrome uh, is bad on many, many uh, levels. One is that the child suffers. And the other is that why shouldn't we give that, that child a, a chance to uh, be loved by that family and uh, offer a, a, a life that uh, would be, uh, would be uh, fruitful. So that, that was an easy decision. As soon as we started doing open heart surgery for AV canal, then uh, of course we would, uh, we would uh, do, that, uh, do these operations on patients with Down syndrome. Uh, then moving forward, uh, people didn't want to do uh, transplants on Down syndrome. I think right now uh, that if a, if a Down syndrome patient needed a cardiac transplant, we would do that. And most people would do that. It's not a contraindication under any circumstances anymore. There is, however, uh, uh, another uh, uh, genetic issue, for instance, trisomy 13 and 18. And while these patients don't live very long, then uh, there's a reluctance of uh, surgeons and cardiologists to perform operations on these patients because they have a very uh, um, um, short lifespan. And, uh, and there have been pressure groups, parent pressure groups that think that, uh, well, look, you know, this child needs to have this operation, why don't you do it? My idea of this, and I think most people have, is that if a child with either trisomy 13 or 18 uh, is suffering, uh, then, and if we can make that suffering less, then they probably are uh, candidates for an operation, assuming that the family wants it and that the that the rest of the organizational structure will support it. The, 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 the result is, or the, the basic result is whether the child is suffering or not. If the child is suffering, then probably you ought to offer something. And most of the time it's closing a ventricular septal defect. And that is uh, not a, as big an operation perhaps as some of the other things that we do. Uh, going a little further, and that is, um, if, you have, if a baby is born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome and has pulmonary vein stenosis and severe pulmonary hypertension and has gastroschisis and an imperfect anus, well, now we're getting to a situation where there'll be multiple operations that may or may not work. And in fact, a hypoplastic left heart syndrome with pulmonary vein stenosis is basically uh, 95 to 100% mortality. And those patients are probably best uh, served by, uh, by uh, comfort care. But um, uh, there are variations on a theme about that as well. I mean, suppose the patient had hypoplastic left heart syndrome, gastroschisis, and imperfect anus. All of those things can be fixed. Would you go ahead and do them? Or would you 
uh, try to nudge the family towards uh, uh, comfort care. And, and I think that uh, that that has yet to be determined what to do about that. And and uh, I think the most compelling issue here is um, how many operations will these patients have, and uh, what is the what is the uh, likelihood that they will have a good life and how much suffering will they have. And I think when you put all those things together, the suffering, how long they will live and what kind of life they will have, I think that that helps uh, 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 physicians, surgeons, physician, uh, family members and nursing staff, that helps them make the decision. Absolutely. Well, there are also bioethical concerns that may be slightly related, such as the non-initiation or withdrawal by the team versus the parents. You know, sometimes uh, the parents are saying continue and the team is realizing that there may be futility. Some of those discussions may be very difficult. Can you speak on that? Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, I think that we're talking about futility. Yes, uh, Gladden? Yeah. I think, um, Futility uh, is a uh, very difficult problem. It really comes down to a power issue. One of the things anyway, power, who gets to say no? Does the family get to say no? Do the physicians get to say no? The nursing staff get to say no? And, and that power issue is right at the forefront of uh, how to, how to uh, discuss futility and how did, it, how did it get to, how did we get to this stage? Why? Uh, is the family not pay not uh, discuss? Now, why are they not uh, engaging with us, so to speak? Why do they not believe us? And it's based on who gets to say no. And then also, of course, the next part situation is trust, and it boils down to the doctor-patient relationship. If there is a good doctor-patient relationship, then there's good trust, and then whatever the physicians tell the family, the family will believe it. But if there's no trust, then the family will not believe it. And that is a problem. And that's why we have uh, the re rejection of futility. And then the other issue is hope. Um, do we take away hope from people? Do we take away hope from a child who maybe not brain dead, but brain absent or brain problems? And, and, and how much, how do, how, do we, how do we deal with the idea of hope? We should never, of course, physicians take away hope, but then at some point there is futility and that has to be uh, arranged, that has to be explained. And mostly we have to make sure that, that there, is, there is no hope, that, that this is a futile situation. And then a lot of people have tried to define futility. I'm not so sure that we can do that very well, uh, but um, there is a, uh, a law, there is a law on the books in Texas and it's been used for um, around the country. And that is, uh, there are certain steps that, um, that a group of physicians can use when uh, the family rejects uh, the, the taking away of, of, of care. And, and that has to do with uh, making sure that other hospitals would not take that patient, that, um, that they also agree that, that this is a futile situation. And to leave and to make sure that the family's involved, getting a a, 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 a uh, ethics consult because there has to be an ethics committee in every hospital, and all these things, all the I's have to be dotted and all the T's have to be crossed, and then at some point or another, 
um, uh, you can you you're you're allowed. You have the law behind you to withdraw therapy. The interesting thing is that oftentimes when you interview patients like this or families like this, they'll say, "Well, I didn't want to be the one to say to pull the plug, so to speak." That's the metaphor that we use, right? But uh, but 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 then since they did it, I understand it. They didn't, in other words, didn't want to have this on their head or didn't have want to have the responsibility of thinking the whole their whole life that they were. They were the ones to say no, and that they were, uh, I guess, relieved when other people said no and went through the process. It's a very difficult situation, futility. Lots of papers have been written by, about it, uh, and the, lots of books have been written about it. Uh, one of them in particular, I, I would recommend, two of them actually, I recommend anyone who, who is listening to this to read. One of them is called Jerome, from Jerome Groupman, G-R-O-O-P-M-A-N. It's called Anatomy of Hope. Now, he doesn't talk much about congenital heart disease, but he does talk about patients with cancer and how um, the idea of hope is rather important uh, to, to, uh, to just to live, live your life out and thinking that maybe if I do this or do that, or if I think this, or if I think that, that at least that's hope. And the other one is by Viktor Frankl, and his, the name of that is uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl was in the concentration camp during World War II. And uh, he thought that, that, that survival, in his mind, was trying to find meaning in suffering. And I guess we can project, project this to our patients if they are suffering. The question is, what kind of meaning is there in their suffering? And how can we help them get through it? Or if the suffering is uh, too much and there's no, there's no hope, then perhaps it's time for us to withdraw therapy. So this is uh, getting almost to the point of uh, religion, but uh, it is something that we uh, have to think about as physicians. We have to con con we have to consider all sorts of things. Absolutely, great answer. Thank you so much. Um, have you ever uh, been a part of a request to complete an operation that may not uh, necessarily achieve the intended goal? Um, by a pediatric cardiologist, by parent, by intensiveness, you know, thinking that a certain procedure that they want to influence you to perform may actually do, but the truth is it, it actually may not. Well, uh, this brings up more than, yeah, yeah, this brings up more than one thing. First of all, no one can make a surgeon operate. You can always refer to somebody else and they may, not, they may or may not want to operate. But if you're in a situation where, um, where a family wants everything done on their child. I think this requires more informed consent than less informed consent. And I think that under some, some circumstances, you need some help, not just you and the family, you need help from their family. You need help from a pastor or a rabbi or a priest or someone to be helpful in, in how this is approached. I, I, I think to say no, without uh, addressing some of these issues uh, is probably the wrong way to go about this. Remember, this is a grieving family and uh, they're trying to figure out how they're going to uh, pro proceed through life. And I think that uh, in the end, if you really feel like you shouldn't do an operation, and I have had that experience, um, I generally say, well, I, I can't do this operation. I, I don't think it's good for the child. And then uh, I would uh, I would refer them to somebody else. But once we get to that stage, usually the family says, "Okay, we understand." 
and uh, usually the comfort care is what happens and uh, and life goes on. What about performing surgery on a very morbid patient um, that maybe you can get them through, um, but there's a burden on the family that may take a toll. Obviously, there's a cost in this resource intensive setting, you know, as yes, yes. just disparities. That's very, very, very good point. And then not only that, it's the unsaid thing about what does that do to my statistics, right? I mean, I mean, this is going, this is a, a, an unwanted consequence of transparency. It's in my book there. Uh, what are the, what are the un, un, you know, unwanted consequences of transparency? And, and I think that uh, doing an operation or not doing an operation is, uh, depending upon how, how, how bad the patient is, is something that, that you have to determine um, with yourself and what what are the what are the indications of what do you what do you expect to get out of it what what do you think is uh, is um, the likelihood of success or not success and, and that kind of thing it's, I think that's a very difficult thing and I really can't give you a very good answer because I don't think there is a good answer uh, for instance uh, somebody comes in with a ruptured aneurysm and the blood pressure is thirty or twenty or something like that should you go ahead and operate. Well, it depends upon where the where the aneurysm is. It's in the abdomen, it's in the chest. Uh, what do you do in situations like that? And I think that many situations, it depends upon how long they've been in shock, what the blood pressure is, how long they've had, they've, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not sure that there's any one good answer to a circumstance that has, there are different circumstances. But there are pitfalls along the way, and one of them is the unwanted consequences of caring about what your results are, what your mortality scores are, and uh, and and, um, and I think that in my mind those should be that should be uh, ignored. I think you're going to do the best you can for that patient. If you think you can save or you can do something to help that patient, you should, and that the other stuff is just stuff and. Uh, you, you're, you we're put on this world and we're, we took, we did our, our, our uh, training and we took an oath to help patients. And if we think we should help, we can help a patient, we should do that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this discussion and uh, this interview. Uh, this concludes our discussion again I'm with uh, Dr. Constantine Brutus. Uh, and he has this great textbook, uh, Bioethical Controversy in Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery that you can get currently on Amazon. Thank you so much, Dr. Mubudis. It's a pleasure. It's a great pleasure.